The following program is recommended for ages 18 and over due to adult content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Behind the Scenes, a look at some of the sometimes steamy inside of Hollywood with your host, Hollywood executive and former Victoria's Secret model, Summer Helene. Our program features the gossip, the dish, and the stories of what's really going on behind your favorite movies, television shows, and celebrities from the people who are involved in the industry. Now, here is your host, Summer Helene. Do you have a desire to be famous? Do you want hordes of people screaming your name? Then ask your therapist if Hollywood is right for you. Hollywood, where you can work your entire first year as an unpaid intern, followed by a mandatory minimum 18-hour workday with guaranteed unpaid overtime. Where sexual assault is so common, you get to sign a waiver promising not to sue even before you start your new job. Warning, side effects may include insomnia, heavy drug use, thousands of dollars in therapy, alcoholism, anorexia nervosa, bulimia and or obesity, dependent on your job and or role, hallucinations, loss of integrity, complete loss of moral compass, bleeding from the fingernails after trying to claw your way to the top, as well as excessive chapping of the lips from kissing everyone's ass. If you have these or any other side effects, or begin to question your life choices, please contact your therapist, because nobody in Hollywood gives a damn. Hollywood, shut up and take it. Yeah, technically, therapists are paid to give a damn, so... Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) G'day, guys. Welcome to Behind the Scenes. I'm your host, Summer Helene, and I have to give you a heads up. I am completely out of it right now. I, uh, I I have had pneumonia for... Going on two weeks, and I feel awful. I'm really having trouble, so I'm kind of going to leave most of the show to Paul today. <laughs> Just be like, here you go, Paul. Um, I do want to give a quick shout-out to pro- our product partners because I'll forget and fall asleep, which is probably going to happen in the next 10 minutes. Mm. Um, to Adrian Alcantar Hair Studios, thank you for always making me look red carpet ready. Aspen Mills Bread Company, thank you for supporting local uh, charities and businesses. Scott Haskin, he always does our music, Scott Haskin LLC. I'm really excited about his new project, and I can't tell anyone about it. Flat Black Art Supplies, they did the paint and the artists for free MMA, which is one of the charities we support. Remember, every time everyone uses, anyone uses bad language on this show, we give money to the Boys and Girls Club of America, the Humane shit, Society of America, fuck, shit, and fuck, free shit, MMA. Fuck, shit, mm-hmm. fuck, shit. And that money is matched by Voice America, so... I like Buckle, that. Um, fuckles, fuckles, <laughs> ball sack, ball sack, ball sack. <laughs> I don't think that counts. <laughs> um, Aloft Seattle SeaTac Airport Hotel, beneath the streets underground tours in Seattle, Queen Kapalani Hotel in Hawaii. Off-road rentals, which always does our giveaways if you want an ATV ride. Write in. Paul will ask you the question today. Um, the new Palm Springs Diet, the sublingual spray by Dr. Russ. I know there were some problems with the website, guys, and we got a bunch of write-ins. I promise you things are working now. We are going to put out some links. So go to the link um, and you can find it on Amazon.com, Etsy.com. Just Google the Palm Springs Diet. Find Dr. Russ. It's fantastic. And, of course, Griggs Vacuums. You make this list because you are Alexis's grandfather. <laughs> um, just saying. It so always makes me laugh th- when you say that. You know, <laughs> I'm it's just like, saying. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's family and we have no choice. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's, okay. It's the, well, okay. Um, and then, of course, our giveaways are from Off-Road Rentals in Palm Springs, California, or True Rest, Sedona, and Las Vegas. So you can get a float or you can get a uh, 
ATV ride, or we could send you LA Lip Squad lipstick, or we have tons of shit to give away. I just don't feel well. Oh, and, <laughs> and go vote. Go vote. Like, they, yes. that's my entire thing. I don't care which team you vote for, but vote or don't bitch about it. Yes, I have a strong suggestion. If you don't involve yourself in the process, it's hard for you to. It's hard for us to take you seriously when you criticize it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So vote, vote, vote. I actually vote in two countries because um, mm. I'm a I'm a dual citizen. So I vote um, in the Australian elections and I vote here. Yeah. Are they any? Are they as crazy as ours? Oh hell no! Australia is a one vote, one person, one vote system, mm-hmm. and we're on the and we're on the Westminster system. So we have a prime minister and we vote in a party, Liberal or Labor, and whoever's the head of the party is the prime minister. And they can trade out the head of the party um, depending on what's going on. If the person becomes too unpopular, like we just lost Malcolm Turnbull, um, depending on what's going on, they can trade that out if the person's too unpopular or too divisive. But mm-hmm. you choose who you want, like which party. But so our, and our equivalent is um, we have something like the Liberal Democrats, and we have the liberal uh, and the and we have the uh, conservative Democrats, um, but we don't have anything like the conservative Republicans. Because if you said the Earth was five thousand years old in Australia, they'd deport you. Well, not all Republicans say that. <laughs> only I'm very just saying. Few. But if if you said that, you would not be welcome in politics. Like that's what gets you put in an asylum. It's it's a little different. Um, but we are. Uh, actually a pretty socialistic country. We have social medicine. It's it's a very... But um, not a socialist country. No, we are, we're a democracy. We're based on the Westminster system. But like England and Ireland, Scotland, Wales, like the, the rest of uh, the um, Commonwealth, we have social medicine. We have all of that. Yeah, that's why I kind of wish that we would stop talking about like socialism in America or like embrace socialism. We should just talk about socializing certain issues like we socialize the military, we socialize, I mean, socialize defense, we socialize police, we socialize fire department. I don't don't see a problem with socialism. I never have. Now, communism is a wonderful theory and is a complete fuck up in real life. Well, yeah, (laughs) because people are involved. Exactly. But on paper, it's a brilliant system. Um, but I mean, socialism, I, I grew up with it, so it's not really, it, it was never a dirty word for me. Mm-hmm. And I found it really strange when, uh, oh, people talked about, um, a democratic socialist being a big deal. I'm like, oh, okay. So for us, that's, you know, like the, uh, like the labor party and then mm-hmm. the, um, Democrats are like the liberal party. <laughs> like it's, it's the, I can tell you, but we don't have an equivalent of Republicans. In Australia, it's very, there's very no, different. There's got to be some sort of like conservative party, though, right? Um, our conservative party would be on par with the conservative Democrats here. Mm-hmm. Um, would be it would be actually closer to a libertarian, fiscally conservative, mm-hmm. socially liberal. Okay. Australians are just socially liberal. Period. That's probably where I would fall. Yeah. You know. So then you would vote Labor, and um, but it's socially liberal. Stick your, uh, I believe, the best way I ever heard it put was by, I'm not going to say which politician, because he said it very drunk at a dinner party. <laughs> but, he said, but he said it best. We don't care where you stick your... We only care that you pay your taxes and treat others well. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> um, but we are a very anti-gun country. <laughs> yeah, and you we, lost me. So. Well, hang on. This Now, you would be okay, but we are very, very... Uh, we regulate very heavily who can have weapons... And it happened after the Port Arthur massacre. We used to be just as liberal as America with the gun rules. 
Like you guys didn't have a whole lot of gun laws before that happened. We did so. not. And then right. once that happened, the government looked at us and essentially went, you know what? You are too irresponsible to have guns. Shame on all of you. And Australia just put its hands up and went, you're right. We're sorry. Here you go. Here are the automatic weapons. <laughs> we give up. You win. You keep the automatic weapons as long as um, uh, you started okay. permitting. Like my dad, uh, my family, because they're in the military, have always had weapons. Um, right, but they don't think they actually had, had see, here's the, here's the thing, I don't think they actually, your family had automatic weapons, they had semi-automatic weapons, and it's an important uh, distinction. Well, hang on, Australia had fully automatic weapons before this. Okay. We didn't give a damn. Oh, so you like, now, no gun laws whatsoever. Yeah, like, it was basically, like, automatic weapons have essentially been banned in America since 1934. Yeah, we, we, but we didn't even have, even semis, you're not supposed to have in Australia unless you're military. Um, or unless you have, there are gun clubs you can be involved with. If you're involved in the entertainment industry, you can get an exemption. But what you have to do is sign up for an exemption, which I think is a great system. We don't have the level of gun violence because of it. But the penalty for having an illegal weapon is so harsh mm-hmm. that it's not worth it. And it's so easy to register to have one. Yeah, it's it's kind of, we've made it really easy if you want to register and really harsh if you don't. So it's so much easier to just register and it's not worth it not to. And that way we've managed to track everything. It was just an interesting way that they did it. Mm. Um, like you you would have no problem. You keep them for film, you keep them for sport, yours are legal and registered, no problem. Yeah, I um, actually have a need for fully automatic weapons. And but that, that's, and that's so be, I can run them on sets. And you, you know? would be allowed to have them. So you In would be welcome. California. To I not a chance of freaking hell. I can't go through it, the amount of ju- steps that I have to jump through, including having a brick and mortar establishment. Nah, yeah, it's it's a gigantic pain in the butt. But that's well, that's the difference. So Australia, the way they did it was they made the gun rules so severe if you get caught outside of the boundaries mm-hmm. that it's just not worth it, and so easy to sign up. Yeah, I've always said that, that I think we can replace a lot of the gun laws that we have existingly and replace them with one that is if you use a gun in a crime, your sentence is tripled. Pretty much, that's essentially it. And that's should, where we, we should are. We should have that in America here. Because, I mean, that's what, you know, I hate to be the guy who quotes, well, okay, I'm going to be the guy who quotes Spider-Man. With great power becomes great responsibility. So. Okay, first yeah. of all, Spider-Man is awesome. You should mm-hmm. always quote Spider-Man. Yeah, Second of all, um... I come from, like, they're in, in Australia, especially, you know, my family's from Tasmania. We have had, you know, we have some people living in cities, some people living up in Queensland, some people living in Tasmania. Like, we, we span the country, and I have family that really do have need of shotguns. Like, I'm sorry, crocodile comes up on there, I'm shooting it. Right. And I'm running because like, it's just going piss it off. So many albums, <laughs> so many animals that, oh, do you guys remove the front sight of your shotguns? You can do whatever you want. Well, no, no, that makes that makes it easier that you know once you you know unload the shotgun into the crocodile and you seriously piss the crocodile off and the crocodile then takes the gun away from you and shoves it up your ass. It doesn't hurt as much. Oh no, we don't. So say so the the plan is shoot the crocodile until the gun's empty, then throw the gun at the crocodile while you run. Right. In which case, it would probably pick up that gun and shove it up your butt. So that front yeah. sight you might want to take that. Off. <laughs> but that's that's kind of what it is. It's um. So Australia has very common sense gun laws. So does England. We and have plenty of common sense ones here. It's just that it's a matter of what people say is common. And, well, you know, it's, 
when you go state to state, you have a problem because all of our laws are federal. England's laws are federal. Mm -hmm. Europe's laws are federal. When you have federal oversight versus state oversight, you can't have someone take a gun from a state that's okay with it to a state that's not. It's simply these are the rules. If you do not register that weapon or you use that weapon in a crime, you are so fucked for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life, it is not even funny. But if you want to register it, come on in. It's free. So yeah. it's a very, it, it's just, it's very different. Yeah, the libertarian side of me says like, the whole national registry thing I have an issue with. I'm, see, I'm huge, I'm a huge proponent of a national registry because it, it protects, it really does protect. And that's happened in Australia where people have been accused of a crime. Their weapons are registered, so they know that wasn't them. It, protect, it really does protect in that degree. I agree with body cams on police for the same reason. Well, because that's, I've, yeah, that protects I've, cops I've, too. So, But that's exactly it. And a gun registry protects the gun owners as well. Because well, if my, you all... My big thing is that if the Second Amendment, which I believe is, uh, you know, uh, our last line of defense against a tyrannical government, it's not a good idea to let that government know where all the guns are. So. See, I think... You can let the government know where all the... It's, it's not a matter of where the guns are, it's who has them. It doesn't matter where you put the guns. You can put them wherever the hell you want. You can put them in your trunk. It does, no one cares. What guns do you have registered to you? Because if they're used in a crime, mm-hmm. we know who did it. And if someone accuses you of it, we know what re- weapons are registered to you. It's, it's actually gotten a lot of people off, which I found really good. And not in the pervy way, thank you people on Twitter. Mm-hmm. When we come back, oh, I do want to say, uh, apparently, uh, Meghan Markle's having a baby. Uh, and, well, uh, not surprised. She is gorgeous. Uh, she so. is. I think I always liked Prince Harry, though. So. <laughs> um, but apparently, there were some people in America that were really upset about it because she's 37. They're saying she's too old to be having a baby, and he's so much younger than her, and blah, blah, blah. Oh, so, grow the hell up, people. Well, but they had the same problem with Kate Middleton because she was older than Prince William. What is it with America? You guys have an obsession with this. The rest of the world doesn't give a shit. What is it with America? I don't get it. I, think I do we love just want to. I think we just want to bitch and moan about things because I ah. mean, as far as the royals go, I really don't care. I just don't. Um, I remember, I'm a monarchist. I'm a monarchist. I get it. I get it. I get <laughs> monarchist. It. I, just, I just don't care. Yeah, loyal monarchist here. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I wasn't, my grandmother would kill me. So I'm Summer Helene. We are on with my co-host, Paul Michael Bolin. When we come back, we are going to be on with the incredible John Reynolds. I'm, I have pneumonia. I think I'm going to go throw up probably. We'll be right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer-Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
where can you learn about EasyWayPromotions.com's social media marketing, brand positioning, and more? Easy Talk Live. Where can you get tuned into celebrities in the business world? Easy Talk Live. Where can you learn about entrepreneurship? Easy Talk Live. Every week, host Eric E.Z. Zuli and his celebrity friends talk about global causes, offer tips and tricks that you can use right now on social media, and give you the chance to promote your projects on Easy Talk Live. Every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Behind the Scenes with host Summer Helene. To connect with the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to bts at summerhelene.com. Now let's go back behind the scenes. G'day, g'day guys. Welcome back to Behind the Scenes. I'm your host, Summer Helene. And we are on with one of my favorite people in yours, my co-host, host of The Militant Moderate, Paul Michael Bolin. Mm. And we are on with our very special guest, someone I look up to and absolutely adore, John Reynolds. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you guys doing today? Really, really well. We were actually... Uh, <laughs> well, she's <laughs> not doing that well, but you know, we're here, okay? I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm a little ill, but I'll be fine. Um, we were talking, we've had, we had you on before and we got a bunch of write-ins because everyone was really bummed. They missed, uh, the, you know, we kind of got cut off. We were talking about your experiences in Hollywood and we had a bunch of people writing in wanting to, to know more about it. So I usually do a bio, but I'd love if you could kind of introduce yourself and tell everyone a little about yourself and I'll be right back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, geez, I don't know. I worked in, uh, I worked in Hollywood. I worked in the film business. I I worked on big films, I worked on small films, I worked on television, I worked commercials, I did everything you could do. Um, that's pretty much it. I, I, I'm only a story. I remember uh, once in my research and stuff, uh, or somewhere, I was told that the motion picture business in Hollywood had 90,000 people who basically made their living at it. In other words, yeah. in a city of 8 million people, only 90,000 of them actually made their living in the motion picture industry. Think about that. I mean, we think of Hollywood as the big machine, and yet, truly, it's a pretty small... Well, it was then. I think it's probably a lot bigger now because of streaming and mm, It's still... It's, it's still it it's so still cool. around a hundred thousand people who are actually was, making a living. Who are making the living? Yeah, it's about a hundred thousand people. We have a ton of waiters and Uber drivers out there. Yeah, that, but yeah. it's it's about a hundred thousand people. You know, another one is at uh, that time, uh, one of the local stations there in Hollywood went out with a camera and a microphone. They didn't have a 
Ooh, they didn't have a guy or a gal in front. They just went to camera. They stuck a microphone in people's about. faces. And they ask them, everyone, how is your screenplay coming? <laughs> I saw that on PBS. Only one person oh. said yeah, they every, didn't have a screenplay. Only one. And, and they were gas pump jockeys. They were store clerks. They were on the street. They were from every possible conceivable line. They did about seven or eight of them. And literally every one of them said their screenplay was in some stage of development. So that is a large part of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. The, the, it's the people true. are hoping you know, that they're going to be involved, of the, you know, because I'd be tech. I got like things. Oh, but Hollywood I think so, today, so. it's a different kind of world because it's so uh, streaming oriented. There's, at those days, it was like four or five big, four or five, I'm being generous, major studios putting out the pictures and three basic networks with a, you know, a handheld network uh, in PBS, if you will. Mm. Uh, and that was, you know, that's the scene. But today, those people can't hardly exist anymore. Um, so well, the it's, big, a change, the, it's a changed world. The big companies are consolidating. Though. I mean, you had Fox swallow up Disney. There were actually 15 years ago more studios and companies than there are now because one just yeah, swallows we're, another. We're basically down to what about six now, I think. You yeah, know. six big ones. And there was a big, lot more independent producing back then too. So it was. Well, one thing I will say though is that because Hollywood is so small, um, the best way I ever heard it put is don't lie about who you know. And this came because I had someone talking to me and said they'd worked for Fox. And I said, oh, who did you work with? Because, again, small world. If I don't know someone, I know someone that does. And, um, you know, then they kind of backtracked on that. And they said, well, where haven't you worked? And I said, well, I've never worked with Columbia. And they said, well, I've worked with Columbia. I was like, great. Who do you know there? Because I still know people there. Like, it's, it's a really, really small place. And it's one of the only industries, I think, where oh, that I've seen the older you get, the better you get at your job and the more respect you get from the community, where in most jobs, people kind of age out at a certain point. Here, the guys running the studios have been running the studios since 1904. And the longer you do it, the more profitable you're considered. So it's, it's very, very different, I think, than most industries. But it's also very nepotistic, where if I have a financial um, risk yeah. or I have something like it's that, I call It's always been that way, though. Yeah. You know, I mean, the very basic, the business was started off of total nepotism. And, and, and when we're talking about film, we're not talking about theater here. So we're talking yeah. about film and all the things There's that happened here? after the creation of film. Um, basically, at that particular point in time, what people probably do not realize is that if you were a Jew in America, you couldn't be in a banking business. You couldn't have a major industry. Yeah. You couldn't have anything. Uh, that's all there was to it. And so without anybody realizing what was taking place, those little little sh black and white things in the arcades turned into five minutes, and then they turned into ten minutes, and then they put into two, two tens, and, those, and it used to be called tens in those days because it was only, uh, you know, uh, so much footage in a can, and that was ten minutes of film, you know, uh, ten minutes of action film. So... Bottom line, that industry exploded, um, and and the bankers and the corporate leaders and all those people at the time did not see it coming. 
You know, it's funny. My mother-in-law, uh, a couple of football seasons ago, interestingly, uh, told me about her parents. She's 92, taking her to the Chicago uh, Fair, World Fair, and there was a display of a TV camera. And she stood there with, and she said, "You know, this will never work." Now she's telling me this story, and I'm watching the Super Bowl on my cell phone. <laughs> That's how fast that all is. Mm-hmm. Amazing. You know? So I see. So, bottom line, what I'm saying is, is there's always been a nepotistic element to the filmmaking process because of that very nature of it. But there's another element to it, and what I learned is this: you know, uh, bottom line. What's the most important thing is can you make me money in this business? Yep. Can you make uh-huh. me money? I don't care what color you are. I don't care what sex you are. I don't care what you do in your bedroom. I don't care what your political beliefs are. I don't give a damn. Can you make money at the box office? Thank you very much. I'm working with you. That's Hollywood. Yep. You know, well, and so the whole concept, yeah. this whole idea about some sort of bigotry or racism or all these kinds of things really, in the end, don't hold weight because the bottom line on it always comes down to, what have you done for me lately? (laughs) What can you do in the box office? Can you turn a dime here? Can you make money? Can you get the film done in time? Can you get it done in time and on budget? Can you get the actors to do the performances? Can you keep the writers... It's a busy, busy thing. And um, I don't know. If I have to give my life to something, I think film business or theatrical business works for me very well. Thank you. <laughs> I agree. Well, that's, and that's it. It's Everyone has their set of people. Everyone has that writer that they go to. I know I do. When I'm, I know something is, you know, going to take some oomph, I go to Deb. If I'm worried about how something's going to come out, I call you. I go to the same people again and again and again because I know they can do it and they know more than I do. And I'm you know smart what? enough to I'm know just stop those smart I'm going to stop me. you for a second. I'm going to congratulate you on saying something that I really think is important for writers to understand. And the reason why I'm jumping on this is because this was a conversation that Dev and I were just having. Maybe it was yesterday, actually. But is that... Um, you know, if you're around a writer as much as like I've been, I can tell you, and they will tell you, professional writers will always tell you the writing is in the rewriting. And it's constantly rewriting your material, keep working it until somewhere along the line you just go, I can't string another thing out of this anymore. I've got to let it go and move on to something new. You know, and unless, of course, you're writing on a deadline, you got to get something done, which she does on a, you know, a daily basis. So that's another reality about that. But anyway, um, she was telling a story about a person who um, wrote the screenplay and uh, hired her to, you know, supervise her process. And the woman resisted her all the way down the line and, cons- and fought to do it her way, which you know, knowing Dev, she's all going, okay, you know, I mean, you're paying me, but if that's <laughs> yeah. what you want to do, go for it. So she had a, a party, a reading, and a, she had food layout and everything like that. And as soon as the reading was up, everybody got up and left the room. And she had this big layout there. And she goes, why did people do that? And Dev said, because, I've been trying to tell you, people don't want to be preached to. 
you know, well, my mother's a professional nurse and she loved it. Well, <laughs> you and your mother can re- watch the movie every night. And, you know, it's a great thing, but, you know. And so, bottom line, you really need people outside of your comfort zone, even, that you can trust are going to be honest with you about your work. Yep. You know, I, I can say this as a personal experience from an actor's perspective, that if I've done a show and somebody comes up to me and tells me I've done a good job or a bad job, I'm going to say the same thing to them, and it's going to be, thank you very much. I really appreciate you sharing that with me. And I honestly, sincerely do. But here's the thing. I know they don't know what they're talking about. All they know is about their personal experience. What happened to me on stage and, and the quality of my work and stuff like that, only I know that and the other people on stage with me. So if the other people on stage want to comment or to critique my work, I'm going to listen to them, but I'm even still only going to give them a grain of salt because they have their thing as well. See, so you have to be able to be comfortable with people going, no, and being able to go, why no? And hearing their why no and go, okay, that works for me or that doesn't work for me. And here's a very important element about this. I just went through this with my niece big time. Is the problem when we make a decision in a creative kind of way, a lot, oftentimes, I think it applies to everything in life, but I'm only focusing creatively here, is what we do is we, uh, we ask the question with a bias. We want it to yeah. turn out a certain way. And what we have to learn to do is separate our bias from the question, put it aside for a moment, go, it's a, it's a legitimate question, but right now I need other hardcore facts. And then I'll bring my bias back into it, and we'll throw it all together and see what comes out in the mix. And I think that's a critical part of a creative process in the theatrical world. I agree with that. It's the, uh, the biggest one, though, for me is I learned, and it was dealing with you um, years ago, I learned always surround yourself with people smarter than you. If I am the dumbest person in the room, I did it right. Because my concern is always the bottom dollar. That's all I'm ever worried about is what's going to bring money, how much is this is going to cost, blah, 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 blah. And if I don't have someone bucking back saying I don't fucking care how much it costs, this is what it needs to look like or this needs to happen, I'm going to fuck it up. So it's... Mm -hmm. Part of management is putting the right people in the right roles. Again, my, my rule is fantastic. I, I guess, you know, what I have to say, for me, what I've discovered, my process works, is that I know going out the door that I have uh, an objective that I want to reach from 6 to 12. I'm aiming at 12. I got, I'm aiming at 12 o'clock, and I know that's my objective. I got a script, I got a budget, I got all these people depending on I got all this stuff going on. But what I know is the minute I step towards 12, that creative process starts to become its own thing. And I also know that the beginning of every creative process is a tumultuous period. It's just the way it is. You have to get through the tumultuous period to get to the other side before it starts rolling along. And then when you get there, you got to let it go and just hold on to its apron strings, if you will and allow it to go, and not try to force it to 12. That's a critical mistake. And if you allow it to space, and always keep in mind that you're aiming at 12, 
and keep that in mind, you will come aware somewhere 11 or 1, maybe even 1.30, and it's going to be better than what it ever would have been at 12. So it's a matter of trusting the creative process. And when you're working in a collaborative art form like film and theater, is there's other people there who offer a great artistic value to the product. Your set designer, your camera person, your your makeup people, your wardrobe people, your lighting people, all these people, you know, take great pride in, you know, their work. And they're always honing and they're always making it better. That's the nature of who the best are. That's just what they do, you know. So you have to go, what do you think? And let them tell you and go, that's a good idea. Let's do it. Or I like that idea. What if we did this with that? Oh, I like that. Let's go with that. The best people I ever worked with, my personal self, and, I, and I'm talking about, like, I think about lighting, camera, Academy Award-winning directors of photography. The ones that I worked with that I worked, I liked the best were the ones who said, what do you think? And I told them. And they go, I think that's a good idea. Let's do that. Or you're right. You know, how do we do that? I think we ought to do it that way. Okay, let's do that. It was a team effort. And I wasn't the only one. There was other guys there who participated in that process. And together, through his eye, we created a product we could all walk away from going, yeah, good work, John. Good work, Coop. Good work, guys. Way to go. You know. And the biggest so, the biggest nightmare for me is when I see producer, director, written by starring. If someone tries to stand that in my direction, I'm like, please don't. <laughs> that's that's never gonna go well. Because once you lose the collaborative uh, part of film, I think you take out most of its value and most of the appeal that it has for a wider audience. You know, I'm putting together a project right now and with some people who don't really know too much about what they're doing they have big ideas and stuff like that and I'm, I'm talking to a guy a uh, camera person and I'm talking about the shooting situation we're going to be in and I started talking about it it's funny because it's really in this conversation I'm actually having with him but I finally get in touch with what this whole thing is going on I realize you know fundamentally I can do this in a day and I can do it in a day if I have a crack crew. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was younger, I did this all day long every day. We all did it all the time. It ain't, we're not create, recreating real. It can be done in a day. I can do all of this entire 44-minute show. I can shoot it all in one day. And I can get it cut in five. Boom. Done deal. Now my budget's done. <laughs> you know, all I need to do is find the locations and, you know, measure it out and add the pieces to fit it all together in that box. And uh, it's a done deal. And not only that, it's all in my head. I know exactly where it's going. I know what I'm seeing. I know what I'm doing. I know when I walk over there, I know exactly what's going to take place. As soon as I see the location, I go, this is it. When I walk out of that room, I will know exactly what it looks like when it's on film. You know, and the reason that is, is because, first of all, I will hire guys who've done it all day long, every day, and can do it. Yeah, and I will give everybody their room to be their best, and I'll just whittle myself down to doing very little, basically working with the talent, and just making sure everything's kind of flowing, keeping it moving. But I don't think I have to worry about that. 
because I'm sure the guy who's going to be the cameraman would pretty much take care of that himself because he's got to do it. And here's the beauty of the situation, just to think about it. This is the new way of thinking. Not only is he the cameraman, he is also the editor. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> you see how easy that is? I know he's going to be thinking of editing. I already know what the script's like. I know the shot dictations. It's cut and dry. It's pretty there. Shooting you know, to edit. It's not, you know, it's simple. So I know he will take care of himself on the back end because he has to because he's cutting it. He's going to make it as easy on himself as he possibly can. So I'll want, what do I need to do with him is make sure the lighting looks good. <laughs> I'm happy with it, and I'm happy with the performances, and boom, we're good. And the, But I can't do it with just anybody. It has to be people who really know. It has to be with really good grips, really good lighting people, good camera people, good yeah. sound person, a good script supervisor, people who get paid top dollar, 750 a day, $600 a day. That's what I'm talking about. Low man, 550 a day, PAs, 200 a day. That's what I'm talking about. That's how you do it. Otherwise, in my personal opinion, excuse my French, you're pissing in the wind. Hey, so remember, every you time you swear on this show, time, we give money you know, to charity, so about that's good. How you're going to make this dollar meet your needs, or you can sp spend the right amount of money and spend all your time on how to get the best thing on the camera, making sure it's done. So anyway, that's my mindset. I think it's a good Went mindset a to have. Didn't I? <laughs> it's a very good that. mindset to have. Now, I have to ask you, what was the most exciting project you ever worked on? Oh, boy, I don't know. There's a few for various reasons. And I have memories of, of shows. I don't know. I, I, I'll, I'll share one of them with you. I, I don't know if I've told you this one. I've told you a story or not, but I worked on a movie called Comes a Horseman. And Gordon Willis was the director of photography on that. And we shot, it was shot over at MGM. And I just came in uh, when they got back on the lot. They'd been on a location. They had Jane Fonda, Jimmy Kahn, the Farnsworth, I don't know, you know, who else. Um, but anyway, we're over at MGM, we're shooting. We're shooting on this set that was an old saloon type of shit, a set with a long bar. And we're sitting there with a big old camera on one side of the bar, and Gordon Willis is behind it, and I'm sitting there, uh, and I'm working in lighting in those days. And on the other side of the bar is James Conn. And it, it's a very political kind of bullshit trip that goes on between cameraman and all this stuff. And Gordon Willis was just like, I mean, it took him an hour and 35 minutes to set a one, one lamp on a stand, you know, that's sitting there the entire time. It was, it was all stuff. So, yeah, anyway, there's, there's, there's an old joke in this town about, you know, what's the difference between God and a director of photography? You know, when was the last time you heard God say he was a director of photography? So. <laughs> yes. So anyway, we're sitting there, and Gordon is doing one of his milking the shop things, and we've been there for a while. Finally, Jimmy Kahn, you know, he goes, I, he goes, I got to tell you a funny story about working on. He brings up Marlon Brando. He says, I got to tell you a funny story about working with Marlon Brando. You know what he does is he well, he doesn't learn his lines. What he does is he. He goes through the blocking, he hears the dialogue, and then he, he has his assistant write it all down, and they put it in places. You know, he's famous for this, on people's foreheads, and all this stuff. You know, and so when he goes, and he, 
he looks at it and he, you know, he looks at it. And you can see him thinking, and and then finally he says the line because that's what he's doing. You know, he's reading, he's thinking about it, stuff like that. So when they would break the A team and we block it, you know, they call him the B team. Well, I would go back in there and I'd go to all the cards and I'd rewrite the cards and put them down in words. And so when we start shooting the scene. You know, Brando would come in and start reading the line, and of course, and it has all these incredible profanities added to it. <laughs> and so he'd go through a couple of these lines with this, and he'd finally go, "Caught, caught!" He goes, "Is that in the dialogue?" Yeah. Oh my God! Uh-huh. How did they get? They've just got Marlon Brando swearing all the way through. That sounds like a that's that's right out of the Anchorman movie with Will Ferrell. You know, that's fantastic. You'll read, read anything that's on the cards. Well, let me tell you this. Uh, I learned this when I went to the Amer- uh, to the Pasadena Playhouse. Probably one of the greatest things I ever learned as an actor, frankly, um, is one of the techniques that you have is, I do this a lot when I work with people, is I get them to just, you know, when I'm trying to introduce people to the idea of how important it is, how you read and what the process about it is. And I'll get a couple of people up who I've explored with. My, I think they're pretty good readers. And I'll give them a scene, and I'll just say, here, read it. And they'll read it, and inevitably it's not a great read. And um, then what I'll go back, and I'll say, well, here's what I want you to do. What I want you to do is I only want you, I want you to look at, look at him, look at her, that kind of thing. Look at him. Get a look at them, think about, ask them, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that person in front of you? How do you think they're feeling? Just get a feeling. Then you look down and read the line. And I usually, I will use like, like some to be or not to be. The line is to be. That's all you want, to be, to be. What does that mean? To be, to live, to see the beautiful roses, to smell the shit, to, you know, be, to be, to be. And you just go through all this. And finally you have a decision about it. So you look back up at the other person and you kind of feel out where they are and you say to them, to be. And you watch them. How do they react? Then you go back to the next line, or not to be, or not to be. What does that mean? And you go through all of that. So the whole process, if you slow the reading down like that, and you get people to start thinking about each little thing they're going to say before they say it, and establishing contact with the individual, both before and after, all of a sudden, you see that, that little scene all of a sudden change. Yeah, it's slow. Yeah, it's taking time. Yeah, those things happen. But I guarantee you, everybody who witnesses will tell you at the end of it, wow, that was good. And what made it good is that they thought about what they were saying and they looked at the other person and they listened to them. It's that simple. Rather than just spitting out lines. Yeah, so if I were to do something on screen, I don't want to know my dialogue like that. I'll look at it, I'll read it, I'll think about it, I'll get an idea. And I know at my particular level of of higher, they're going to expect me to be right on the line. And I can manage that. I'm not worried about it, frankly. What I want to know is what I'm saying, not the words I'm saying. In my mind... You know, wannabe actors learn lines. Actors learn why. What's the intention? What do I want? That's what you're. That's what you're learning. You're not learning lines. And if you learn to be, what does that mean to me? To be this, to be that. There's this, and there's that of it. To be, I know what to be means. Now, when I say to be, it means something to be, or not to be. 
that? <laughs> it is a question. You know, so why I can do that? Because I thought about it all along. I mean, even William Shakespeare said, speak the speech I pray thee, not as I, you know, don't wave your hands or soar the air, but trippingly on the tongue, as I pronounced it to you. Because he <laughs> depends on the emotion of those actors to stir yeah. his, his mother and his uncle and to, to acknowledging the reality of their murder of his father. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. But if they much blanch, I know, you know, my course. See, so, and so I thought, I always find it interesting that William Shakespeare actually gives a really good lesson in how to be in a moment. <laughs> Just my interpretation of his speech, but I think if you really look at it, that's what you're going to come up with. It was very, it was very well thought out. <laughs> That's really good. I never looked at it from that perspective. That's, you don't, he's, I like that he's teaching a lesson about how to play in a play. Well, yeah, but, but he was motivated. I mean, you know, when they say, um, you know, uh, what is it? Something is, is a mother invention. Necessity is the mother invention. He's the mother of all invention. Yeah. yeah and, and Hamlet's necessity was to differentiate the reality of this ghost situation, you know, from his own, you know, inability to make choices and decisions and stuff. But he needed to have some sort of proof, even though it was blatantly obvious to anybody, he just wasn't willing to go there because he was really reluctant. So he figured, hey, you know, I'll have these people act the play. I'll have, have them actually do the murder according to the way my father told me in the beginning of the play, remember? I will do that yep. before them. I'll have these actors do this, and they will, and I'll watch them, and, you know, Hey, they'll tell me the truth because I've often heard that players, um, oh gosh, the lines evade me now, who've seen, you know, oh gosh, what was you thinking? But it's all in that, it, it's all in the, uh, the place, the thing, we're in, I'll catch the conscience of the king. It's in that yeah. particular piece, um, somewhere in there, that he's explaining why, you know, his choices and why he's doing what he's doing. So... Uh, oh, anyway, the, uh, why are why um, we are all merely players? Line, I think, right? Yeah, it's uh, we are all merely merely players on the set. Yeah, yeah. So amazing. Um, I and I think it's interesting too. I really believe that um, at that particular particular point in time in our history, Shakespeare and uh, what's his name there. Um, that's uh, the time that the con concept of a romantic love kind of got sealed. It's, the deal was sealed with them. Romant the concept of romantic love didn't happen until 1100s um, with a ballad about the Istin and Isulet, which the minstrels played up and down through Europe and stuff like that. So, and, and that was the first kind of story uh, in regards to the concept of, you know, romantic love. Before that was all contractual. And affairs, it was money. affairs and the slide. But, you know, romantic love was not, it was a, I mean, if you look at the, well, look at the Knights Templar, the, the whole concept of knights. Knights were individuals who pledged their heart and their whole life to some woman who they, in theory, could not have. So it was often the wife of some lord or something. And they I think pledged their life to it. And there was this whole purity. That was all, if you look into the whole, you know, the... the 
propaganda that the knighthood was selling at that time to recruit guys. <laughs> well, the, pet, the story they made up for themselves, the myth they created for themselves, just like all of us were busy creating myths for ourselves. But anyway, it's an extraordinarily interesting thing because it changes <laughs> a lot of stuff. And Shakespeare was really instrumental, one of the instrumental, Moliere and all those guys there. It was just great. It was, I think the fun. first, wasn't the first major love story that Tristan uh, Isolde, is it all, is, uh, was well, one of the first big ones that got popular. Oh, you mean his plays a, or just in general? Like Tristan, it was Tristan and Isidol, is is Isaldi. I've only read the damn thing. Um, yeah, and, but and, that was and really when we at this particular stage in in history and humanity look back on that particular piece when you read it, what they have of it and stuff, you go, I don't know, I, I don't get it. <laughs> How did this? you know, stimulate it. But the fact of the matter is because it's a really depressing story. By the way, have you ever bothered to read the book, uh, Pinocchio by the original yeah, writer? Oh my God. It's awful. It's, so yeah, it's a little creepy. A little it's creepy. Rough. Jesus. Uh, wrote Disney. a screenplay, uh, based on that. It's very, uh, uh, esque um, I, and I, it's an appropriate way to go with that, too, isn't it? Because it's such I, a dark I, kind of idea. i got to say, every time Disney picks up a Grimm's Tale or something, I'm shocked. Because even if you read the original Little Mermaid or you read Pinocchio or you read any of these things, these are horrific stories. I mean, Cinderella's sisters cut off their feet. Yeah. It's, there's nothing yeah, good I'm glad Pinocchio. Had, I'm glad Disney Pinocchio edited that part out. Pinocchio is the top of the heap. Pinocchio is the top of the heap when you go to depressing, awful stories. It well, is you know, it's truly like heartbreaking. If you listen to early folk music in America, you know, it's very negative, dark stuff. You know, a, wall, a rockabye baby in the treetop, if the cradle fall, the baby will, you know, if the cradle on, the baby will fall. I mean, hello, you know, the little Miss Froggy, she went in court, and what happens to them? They all get eaten by the cat. <laughs> Oh, what was the uh, was the other that. one? Uh, Clementine chased she ducklings through the water. There she fell into the brown. Brian, dreadful, sorry, was no swimmer, and I lost my Clementine. Yeah. So I think, though, here's the thing. If you look at that, all of that stuff, all the way up to the 18, late 1800s, the industrial age birth, it all changes at that particular point in time. It I see that. Changes. And we and and when it changes, we get words like communism, socialism, individualism, humanism, humanism um, fascism. Uh, all of a sudden, we have a whole new vocabulary that we today in America, in, this, in the West, and even in the East, you know, um, use uh, on a daily basis in a lot of varying contexts. It's like using the word F-U-C-K, for example. There's so many ways it can be used. It's ridiculous. So, you know, I, I think um, I think it's worth noting um, that, you know, the changes that have happened since that period of time are, are extraordinarily significant. And, uh, and, and just kind of off the off on my own little space here for a second, really. Uh, I, I think that the next space we're going to, or humanity, is going to be 
way big. Uh, it's going to just devastate everything that's ever come before. Uh, just like us going from hunter-gatherers to cultivators changed it changed humanity. Boom. Hope, you know, that's done. We're in a whole new thing now. Uh, that's what's happening right now. We're, getting ready. We're headed into that. And I, I can, think it's a prime I can coming, see that. By the way, I think it's a prime time today for people who are storytellers and, and people involved in the process of storytelling. Because what people need more than ever today is hope. And, and people are everywhere. It's a global problem. It's not an American problem. It's a global problem. All over the world today, people are suffering from a feeling of lack of hope. And back in the bottom of that, down deep inside of it, is this easy idea of uselessness. And interestingly, there's more people who die of suicide today than in all the wars, terrorist acts, and murders globally. That's very, and very true. And the highest percentage of the people who commit suicide are in affluent societies. I think, that's a, I think that says a lot about where humanity's at right now. We hit a wall. We're getting, we, there's a big thing coming in. So people who tell stories and are a part of that process have a big obligation <laughs> You know, because the next myth we're going to buy into is starting to take place right now, and we need to get a handle on it. And it's the people who tell the stories that can make that happen. And and I think you got to clear smoke. You know, people who do the storytelling, we need to clear the smoke from the screen and look at what's real. For example, if I reach over and I can't do it because I'm somewhere else and punch you on the arm, you're going to go, ouch. Because mm-hmm. you're real, but if I reach over and punch the the church or the the Department of IRS or FBI, they don't say a word. Why? They're not real. The people in them are real, but they, those things are not real. They're subject to change in big ways. They're what we make them. So, it's very much. It's people, very much like it's so, much like the dollar. It's what you put your faith yeah. in. Um, we have about so, thirty seconds left. I was going to say, John, that is the absolute best thing I've ever heard. I don't think people realize Hollywood entertainment, reaching out to people, you have a direct line into people's consciousness. And I do think there is an obligation, one, to do the right thing, two, to help alleviate um, the unhappiness in the world. And, and, and so I think that's... And here we go again. With great power comes great responsibility. Uh, exactly. We started with that. We're ending with that. I like that. But See, I think coming back around to Spider-Man. <laughs> Everything's about Spider-Man, apparently. Okay, fair enough. I like that. Um, John, we have to hop off. I'd love to have you on again. We didn't get to any questions, and I have like 51. So I'm going to get some hate mail on Twitter. Yeah, we, I didn't ask one question. Questions. Yeah, I'm we're, so who sorry. cares? All right? I'm you just going to use it as a bribe to okay, get John so back next on. Next time, just go, okay, I have a question for you. Let's start <laughs> with that, and then we'll go there. <laughs> okay, I like that. But I'm just going to use it as a bribe to get you back on. John, thank You're you welcome. so much for being on. Guys, I'm going to put up a link to John's social media. I'm going to put up a link, of course, to Paul's Militant Moderate. I'm Summer Hellion. This is Behind the Scenes. I know we ran over. Thank you for joining us. I'm sorry we didn't get to questions. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
Thanks for checking out the show. Behind the Scenes can be heard live on the Voice America Variety Channel every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. Be sure to join Summer Helene for more Scoop next week.